started doing what Hollywood kept telling me to do was to lose weight. And I felt like I changed my personality. I felt like I changed my style and my look, all, all because I wanted to make some person behind a keyboard happy. And I just lost myself. I, I didn't feel like me. I felt like I was constantly trying to morph into someone else for the world, and it got really, really exhausting. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Sean Johnson. Sean is an Olympic gymnast, entrepreneur, and New York Times bestselling author. In the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, Sean took home four medals for Team USA, including a gold for her performance on the balance beam. At just 16 years old, Sean found herself in a glaring spotlight. And while this seems like a dream come true for any athlete, what no one realized is that she was privately suffering from an eating disorder. On top of that, after having trained as a gymnast for her entire life, Sean suddenly found herself without a sense of direction post-Olympics. And as she was navigating this identity crisis, she was still in the spotlight thanks to a couple of stints on Dancing with the Stars and other endorsement deals. The continued attention only led to more public scrutiny and insecurity for Sean, which resulted in more disordered eating. Today, Sean is in a much healthier place. She and her husband, retired NFL player Andrew East, run multiple successful businesses together, including their own YouTube channel and podcast. But as Sean tells me, it was neither a straight nor easy path to get to where she is today. My full conversation with Sean right after this quick break. Sean Johnson, thank you so much for joining Imposters today. Thank you for having me. Pumped to do this. So you started in gymnastics at age three, which to be honest with you, I don't have a child yet and I can't remember when I was a child. So I was trying to figure out like, what do normal children do when they're three? And uh, I looked up on Google and it says they should be walking upstairs by that time. So <laughs> for the for the average child, they're walking upstairs. For you, you were starting gymnastics. Tell me about how you got into it so early. So Google might say one thing, but like, a gymnastics class for a three-year-old is very normal. So the same time you might put like a toddler in a swim lesson or a little soccer class, it's the same type of thing, but gymnastics. My parents put me in gymnastics though, because I was a three-year-old that had way too much energy. I believed I could fly at the age of three. And so I found myself in the ER multiple times, staples in my head, stitches Jeez. everywhere, just nothing a parent wants to go through. So they found gymnastics and it was just this padded playground that I fell in love with. And I would come home every night tired. And my parents were very happy with that. That sounds like a perfect situation for your parents. This is a fun thing, a fun activity for you. When did it switch into something where it became very pressure filled, where you kind of turned into this perfectionist that you would be for kind of the entirety of your career? I was I was a very strange child. So inside like a school setting or like a social setting, I was the shyest kid you could ever meet. And I found all of my like security and confidence in life in the gymnastics gym. 
And so that perfectionism, I think almost started at a very young age, just because I didn't like feeling insecure. And so I would push myself, unlike any other kid in the gym, so hard in the gym because I loved that empowering feeling that I felt. All that to say, though, I made the USA national team when I was 12 years old. And I think the first time it started feeling like a job and like I had pressure on me was probably around 13 or 14 years old. And this is just, it's just weird to say. When I was at like world championships and I really had like the pressure of the team to perform well. And I had like endorsements and all of that, that added a different layer to it that I had never really thought of before. And when you think about this pressure and you reflect on it, how much of it was driven by your own innate fire to be great at the sport? How much of it was driven by insecurity because you liked being loved and this was the the setting in which you felt loved? And how much was it driven by these external things like your coaches or your teammates or your endorsements? Honestly, my entire first career, quote unquote career, so my first Olympics was 100% driven by me. I mean, and kind of my passion for the sport. And I, I would lump into that the insecurity side, but that was a comfort and not like, it wasn't me looking for a fix or an addiction. That sounds yeah. weird to say. It was truly a passion that I had never felt before. I loved gymnastics more than anything in the world. And I had the opposite of cliche stage parents. They would beg me to quit gymnastics on a weekly basis. And really, yeah, because they came from a really rough upbringing and their dream in life with their child, with myself, was to have just a normal kid. And I spent 30 hours in a, a week starting from the time I was 10 years old in the gym on top of public school, on, on top of other like after school activities. And I'm an only child and they, they truly just didn't feel like they ever got time with me and they missed having their little kid around. So my mom would every week be like, are you sure you don't want to skip practice today? We can go shopping. We can go to Dairy Queen. We can do whatever you want. And I was like, no, I, I really want to go. And how aware were your parents on both the pressure that you felt from the sport, uh, the pressure you put on yourself? And then at some point, which I want to find out, at, you know, at what point in your journey this was, the way that it impacted your body and the way mm -hmm. that you took care of or didn't take care of your mm -hmm. body. I think my parents were probably more aware than a lot of other parents because they were so protective and they were so anti success in in a very healthy way. They were never those parents who were like, what do we have to do to get her to the Olympics? What sacrifices do we need to make? They were the ones who, I mean, they had like weekly conversations with my coach and saying they wanted my coach to hold me back because they didn't want me to move on and be in a group with like older kids. They, they truly wanted to kind of protect that child in me. So I feel like they were aware of almost every part of it until it got to a level where it was under a different organization, which is when it was under, when I moved on to be a part of like the USA team and I was being kind of quote unquote coached to a certain extent by other people, I think all of that started to be more, um, they started to be more blind to that. Not because of, you know, a fault in their side, but just because there was so much that went into it. And was any of that a function of you not sharing it with them or not feeling comfortable oh, yeah. sharing with them? <laughs> it was it was a it was a result of 
I don't even know how to like explain that, but my coach was the greatest blessing to ever happen to my career. He was so far against what the stereotypical journey of an Olympian looked like. He wanted me to go to school dances and prom and train half the hours of the average elite person. And he truly just wanted to protect the child in me. And when I would go off to these camps and when I would go off to be coached by other people, he was always with me. And his number one rule was to never listen to them. He said, if anybody talks to you, it goes in one ear and out the other. And you come to me and I'll tell you what to do. And I think as an as a child, I had a really, really hard time doing that. And so I would get all this coaching and all of these pressures put on me by the organization. And I'd have a really hard time letting that go. And so it was it was almost my fault in saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna hide these pressures and just kind of compartmentalize them instead of put them on my coach to tell me they were wrong. What's striking to me about Sean's story so far is that she had a really positive, supportive group of people in her corner. Her parents, who sound incredibly nurturing and grounded, as well as her coach, Leng Chow, who cared far more about Sean's ability to have a normal childhood than her athletic achievements. But even with this healthy and supportive network of people around her, she still succumbed to external pressures, and the intensity of the standards she was being held against led her to an eating disorder. So leading up to the 2008 Olympics, uh, I want to just talk about the way in which you treated your body. Um, you restricted yourself to 700 calories a day. Mm -hmm. You trained for four or more hours a day. Why did you start doing this? Oh, great question. Uh, I never told my coach. He would have been very mad, very disappointed, and very against every decision that I made that way. The reason was... I was 14, 15, 16 years old. I had the pressures now of the institution of USA Gymnastics and the national team and ambassadorships, endorsements and everything on me. And I had all of these voices in my head from other people outside of the sport that in order to succeed in a subjective sport, I needed to look a certain way. I needed to look more of the traditional artistic ballerina style gymnast than I did the muscular, powerful gymnast that I was. And because I was a child and I didn't have a sports psychologist or a nutritionist or anything, I didn't know how to achieve that. So I said I should probably work out more like other gymnasts are doing, and I should probably eat less like other gymnasts are doing. And I somehow managed to still perform, but it was not smart at all. How long? did you deprive your body for? Mm, many, 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 many years. Like how many? Um, I probably started making poor choices and not protecting my body and my performance from the time I was 14 until I was 20 some years old, 20, early 20s. But I did it through the Olympics. And again, at the time, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong because because our organization, USA Gymnastics, was, and this is so backwards, but it's just the mentality that they have, and it's since changed. Um, there was almost this flaw in people's thinking that since we were children, we don't need the professionals that adults need. So we don't need nutritionists, psychologists, like all of those people protecting us when it should be the reverse. Like we should have had more people. But I did it to the Olympics succeeded at the Olympics. And then when I lost my sport, so when I retired, I lost my identity and had a very, very hard time trying to find what to do next. And 
started reading social media posts about how I no longer looked like the Olympic gymnast and I had gained weight and I had done all this. And it seemed like the only thing I could control was that aspect of my life. So I continued to take supplements and try fad diets and over-exercise, under-eat, kind of do all of all of the lists of things. Well, obviously you look back at it in retrospect and you weren't nourishing your body, but at, like you said, at the time, it wasn't something that you were actively thinking about. Mm -hmm. But even just emotionally, what I'm wondering is like in the, the lead up to the Olympics, were you enjoying all of the things uh, around being an Olympic gymnast? Like what was your emotional state? Such a loaded question. There's so many different aspects to it. I know. Um, at the Olympics, I felt like I was balancing that scale on pressure and duty and job versus joy and passion. And I distinctly remember very long story that I've given like lectures on <laughs> for hours. Um, my particular event that I kind of put all my weight on was the all around. I came in second and it was kind of from that that point forward. So I still had three finals to go. I had felt like I had already failed the pressure that I felt was on me. I felt like the world was already disappointed and that sounds just ridiculous, but I did. I felt like I had failed the world. So something switched in me where I didn't care how I did anymore. I was just there to play and have fun and I won a gold. So I feel like half of my Olympic experience was under duty and pressure and half of it was under joy. So it was kind of just balancing back and forth. The aftermath, everything that came after gymnastics, I actually just did an interview with Kyle Petty yesterday, and I feel like he articulated it better than anybody has ever said. Um, my dream in life was to be an Olympian in gymnastics. I wanted to be a gymnast. And when gymnastics was done, like you don't dream about the commercials, you don't dream about the interviews, you dream about doing your sport. And so everything that came after was fun, but it wasn't gymnastics and it was hard because I was still being celebrated as a gymnast, but I couldn't go play. So it was fun and I loved it, but I loved gymnastics more. I mean, pushing forward in 2009, that's when you ended up going on Dancing with the Stars, right? Yes. Explain why it wasn't the easiest experience for you. So I did two seasons. I did the first season in 2009 and I won. Yep. And then I did the all-star season. I came in second. Got it. I should have won. Um, <laughs> not bitter at all. Um, why it wasn't the easiest. So the entire experience was incredible. Like me personally there doing it, dancing, filming it, everything. I could not have loved it more. I felt like I was free to try something new. I had the most supportive coach, partner, Everybody was just amazing. The reason why it was very hard on me was the outside world was so critical. And I think something that people don't understand is when you see an athlete succeed in life or a Hollywood actress or whatever it is, you, you kind of put them on a pedestal and you take a, sna a, a snapshot in your mind. And that's all you remember and that's all you respect and that's all you want. And if that person changes, it's almost like the world for some reason gets disappointed. And they're like, wait, why aren't you the 16 year old girl on a leotard with 5% body fat anymore? And it's just like unrealistic expectations. And when I went on Dancing with the Stars, I wasn't training the same hours. I was living my life as a kid as I should have. 
and my body changed and the world didn't like it. And that really messed with my mental state. I was having so much fun and the world wasn't appreciating it or respecting it. And I felt this sense of duty to kind of please people. And it just didn't, didn't end well, I guess. Well, so when you say it didn't end well, what does that actually mean? Uh, just more poor habits and more insecurities. And I was living in Hollywood and I was on TV every single day and I was trying to please millions of viewers to become something that I wasn't. And I took my eating disorders to a higher level and I started taking Adderall and ephedrine and I started doing what Hollywood kept telling me to do was to lose weight. And I felt like I changed my personality. I felt like I changed my style and my look all, all because I wanted to make some person behind a keyboard happy. And I just lost myself. I, I didn't feel like me. I felt like I was constantly trying to morph into someone else for the world. And it got really, really exhausting. Did you talk to anyone about this when you were going through this? Like, did you talk to your parents about it? No, not at all. I felt like I talked to some close friends back in the day, but to put it in perspective, I was still 16 years old. I still didn't have that mental capacity to understand that what I was feeling was wrong. And I think I processed it as just part of life instead of having that maturity to understand that this is wrong and I needed help and I needed to talk to someone. I, I just saw it as a sacrifice you have to make in living in, in that world. According to the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders, somewhere between 35 to 57% of adolescent girls engage in crash dieting, fasting, self-induced vomiting, and use of diet pills. Athletes are also more likely to screen positive for an eating disorder than non-athletes and may be less likely to seek treatment for an eating disorder due to stigma, accessibility, and sport-specific barriers. Add these factors together with the fact that Sean had the attention of an entire country on her, and it seems almost impossible that she wouldn't develop some sort of disordered eating. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear more about Sean's journey towards finding purpose after gymnastics and how she finally started to recover from her eating disorder. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. we're back to the show. Before the break, Sean described how her experience on Dancing with the Stars, despite being fun, ultimately led to increased public scrutiny of her body. And it would still be a while before she would start to recover from it. So after Dancing with the Stars, you know, you talk about this low point. I don't know what year it was exactly, but it was, you You explained that you're on a ski trip with friends and it's when yeah. you ripped up your knee on the ski trip. Describe mm -hmm. just that trip and why it was such a low point? Uh, it's my 18th birthday. I was there with friends. 
to kind of put it in perspective, I had done two years after the Olympics of just whirlwind media and opportunities, but that was also two years of struggle for identity. I, I felt insecure. I didn't feel like I was me. I felt like I felt lost. I didn't have gymnastics, but I hadn't found a new career that I loved. I was just kind of in limbo. Went skiing. It was that cliche. Also, fun fact, my coach, being the coach that he was, was the most lenient coach in the world. You could do whatever you wanted. I could go ride horses. I could jump out of planes. I could do anything. I could not ski. That was the one rule. So what do I do after the Olympics? I said, I want to ski. Um, I had been skiing for two years. This was not my first time, but it was cliche story. Last run, last day, freak, freak fall. Nothing dramatic even, just small fall, but felt my whole knee just pop. Laying on the side of a mountain, as dramatic as that sounds, <laughs> the first thought I had, because I knew something was wrong. I, I knew I had messed something up. My first thought was, what if I could never do gymnastics again? And that was like my sign of I had unfinished, not business and performance or success, but just I wasn't done with my sport yet. And I missed it. So flew home, saw an orthopedic. He said I tore everything. Then my next stop was my coach. And I said, I want to come back, but I'll see you in a year. And he laughed and he's like, of course, this would happen. So. And so what was the experience of trying to get back into gymnastics after having that cliche revelation on the ski mound? Very humbling and very difficult. In my career, I was also very lucky. I had never had a major injury. I'd never had surgery. I'd never really broken a bone, nothing. I was very, very lucky in my sport. And it was the first time I felt like my body was not invincible. I felt like my body could fail me. I had never felt that before. And I had to rebuild literally everything. And so I had to start over. And it was the best thing I could have done because I trained and rehabbed for two years, made it all the way back to world championships. And I felt so at home in the gym. I felt so happy. I felt so confident. But when I made it back to competition, I still felt like it just wasn't for me anymore. Huh. And it was this amazing revelation of it got me healthy, it got me sane, it got me help. Especially when I was doing the comeback, I did it completely different. I knew in the, those two years before the ski accident how unhealthy I was. So when I started training, I hired a sports psychologist, I hired a completely new team, I hired a nutritionist. And I mean, they made every single decision for me. And I just got sanity back and I felt like I was under control. And when the world saw how well I was doing, the world started respecting me again in social media and whatever. And I just kind of thought it was comical because I had made it all the way back and I could have cared less. I loved who I was outside of competition, but I did not like how I felt under the pressure of the world and competition. It kind of sparked all those negative mental habits again. And so I retired and I felt amazing about it. That's awesome. I want to talk about what post-retirement has looked like for you and, and also how you've found new purpose, which I personally have found is an incredibly difficult challenge. But I'm wondering, you know, you, you explained that in kind of the second time around of trying to get back into the Olympics, you kind of had this right setup of of people and resources to treat your body better. Was there 
a specific moment in time where you're like, yeah, I'm treating my body incredibly poorly and I need to change. And the reason I ask that is, you know, I've had people really close to me in my life who have had eating disorder and body dysmorphia. And first of all, I, I saw how difficult and painful it, it was for them and how disordered their thinking was for so long for them to even realize that there was an issue, but also how difficult it was for myself and my family to see it. And so I'm just wondering, you had to get to a point of awareness in order mm -hmm. to actually want to do something. And when did that happen for you? It's kind of been ups and downs. So two years after the Olympics to when I started my comeback and the surgery and everything, my choice to kind of hire a new team wasn't because I had a realization that I was unhealthy. It was a choice because I didn't know how to come back and I didn't know how to change, like I didn't know how to get there. And so it was more of this determination and professional decision of I need more coaches. I wasn't ready to accept that I had something wrong. They got me to where I needed to be. I retired. I went back onto Dancing with the Stars, and it was after that that I had a, a two-year stint after Dancing with the Stars where I, I probably hit my low. And I remember being, I think, still living in L.A., and I was finding connections to doctors who could prescribe me more and more Adderall. I was binging and purging. There was no mirror in the world that I could look in and feel happy about. And Why were you taking Adderall, by the way? Um, because... My doctor, the famous doctor from USA Gymnastics, yep. back when I was competing, if you were over a certain age and you were struggling with weight, which is what I was classified, you had to take Adderall to lower your appetite and increase your energy. So got me highly, highly addicted, and it was just a comfort and an outlet for me. I felt like it would just help me regain my confidence. And so I think it was around 2013, 14. I remember just hitting a low and I was just so unhappy. And I think I was binging and purging one night and I was just like, I, I can't do this anymore. I literally can't. The body dysmorphia, every single thought I had in a day revolved around food or identity. And I just felt defeated. And so went back to my nutritionist, who's the one who got me back into my career because I had kind of taken a two-year hiatus. And she was she was basically my new coach. And she was the greatest blessing to ever happen to me outside of Chow. We shared many tears together and just kind of got me through. And I worked with her for almost 10 years and still talk to her to this day. So with the help of your nutritionist and potentially others, it sounds like a combination of not just only treating your body better, but also maybe gaining more mental clarity mm -hmm. around what true health and treatment of your body looks like. What was the process for you of figuring out who Sean Johnson is? And I asked this selfishly uh, because we sold the majority of our business in October of 2020. I moved from the CEO role after being in it for five years. 10 months ago. Mm -hmm. And I probably spent the last 10 months being like, who the fuck is Alex Lieberman yeah. if he's not the CEO of Morning Brew? And I've started to find answers, but definitely not there. And so selfishly, I just want to take notes on how you found the answer. So I think the hardest part, and this went in different chunks of time and periods of time too, the two years after 2008 Olympics, I did anything I could and I took every opportunity I could 
that would keep me at the top, if that makes sense. So doing Dancing with the Stars, being a celebrity guest somewhere, doing high paying speaking roles, whatever it is that kind of kept that baseline. Yeah. Staying at, relevant. Yes. Staying relevant. I did. And I hated all of it. All of it was for press and all of it was for a name and all of it was for money and all of it was because the team around me said that's the smart decision to do. And I felt just worthless doing it. It felt fake. And I hit a point after I retired, after I met my husband and we started dating, I quit everything. I let go of my team. I let go of every single person that was around me. And I took two years off and did nothing. I did a speaking engagement here or there that sounded fun, but I just played around. I truly kind of went back to those days where I found gymnastics and I tried everything that scared the living crap out of me. So I tried starting a company. I tried writing a blog. I went to college and studied psychology and nutrition. Funny enough, I got certified under Nike as a physical trainer or a personal trainer. And I just started finding these little things that gave glimpses of joy. And I'd be like, wow, that was so fun. And about two years later, I hired a new team and I said, okay, I've enjoyed all of these things and I've hated these things. Let's now move in this direction. And if you don't want to, then we're not the like right fit, but like, this is what I want to do. And we just kind of worked from there. But I, I think the question you ask, it's so hard when you've reached success and you've earned respect from other people by being a CEO, it's really hard to humble yourself and start over. That's the scariest part. For Sean, so much of her life and career had been about endorsement deals and external validation from the public. She had worked so hard to earn respect from others, first by training for and achieving gold at the Olympics, and later by abusing her body to fit a certain ideal of what she was being told she should look like. But finally letting go of her sponsors and being in the public eye, Sean says, wasn't scary so much as it was a relief. She was finally being freed of constantly being told how to act, what to wear, and how to look. And while she did take a financial hit in making this decision, Sean says it was completely worth it. She started dating her now husband, Andrew East, who she says helped her feel more confident. And the community that they built around themselves made Sean feel like a human being again, and like success wasn't the most important thing. And ultimately, Sean and her husband started creating a social following of their own. We started building this network and visually it's hard to represent because behind the scenes there's a lot more than what we can actually put on a website. Still trying to work on the, that part. Yeah, yeah. But we have this network called Family Made where we truly believe, having gone through the NFL and the Olympics, that a positive influence can go a hundred generations down the road. And I feel like there's so many negative influences in the world that we've created this network of podcasts, people, families, communities, influencers, celebrities that all have a good voice out there that are truly wanting to change the world, that we're kind of backing them, which has been fun. And hopefully in the next few years, we can put a better face to it and show the world what it is we're building, but we're really excited about it. One last question for you, which is, it's very interesting because early in your life, you were in the limelight which I think is incredibly difficult for anyone as people, as we're trying to build up our own sense of self intrinsically and not mm -hmm. kind of snack on the junk food that is external validation. And you had this really early in life, and unfortunately you didn't have the tools to navigate it. 
you come full circle now where actually you're in a spot that you are receiving external validation constantly, yeah. right? You have a YouTube channel with millions of subscribers. You have Instagram account with millions of followers. You have a podcast that has 32,000 reviews. How do you maintain a healthy relationship with that? It's a challenge every single day. And my husband and I are very, very vocal about it with each other. And we've now hired an incredible team of people that work with us, but we do silly things every single day to kind of protect ourselves from it. For many, many years, I wasn't allowed to read comments until I was able to get to a place where I was strong enough to, to digest them. Now, we always say if you read something that doesn't sit well, you have to read it aloud. And you have to have the group validate or invalidate whatever it is. But I also don't think it's healthy for anybody to read that many compliments on a daily basis either. And I think it's just constantly having that conversation in my head of why are you sitting here scrolling through comments? Why are you trying to find bad ones? What What is it you're looking for? And every day my husband and I have to say, you know, why is it we're doing this? And it's a full-time job, honestly, trying to keep your, your head on you. Okay. We're going to finish up here with a lightning round, if that's cool okay, with you. Great. Okay. What is something that motivates you that maybe you're not so proud of? Ah. Uh, I mean, for being honest, probably followers. Yeah. We all get wrapped up in those numbers, which I hate. Totally. Two more. If a teenage Sean was sitting next to you right now, I don't know if you have a chair next to you, but imagine there is one. Uh, She is in the throes of body image struggles, anxiety, and depression. You can say one thing to her. What do you say? Just give her a hug. We get that answer way more commonly than you think. I know. I feel like so many people are afraid to say something's wrong. And I I think I was so terrified to admit that I wasn't the strongest person in the world. But if I were to say one thing to myself back in the day, I would say it's not going to make your life any easier to try to please anyone. I spent so long trying to seek external validation. And it actually made it worse. So I would just say be you. Stop trying to be someone else. Love it. And one last one. At the lowest point in your life, what did you do to push through it? Asked for help. Asked for a lot of help. I was taught my whole career to just keep pushing through. You know, there isn't a roadblock you can't get through. That's kind of what athletes are taught. And I don't think help was ever, especially in, a, in our society, like accepted. You always, that always made you seem weak. And I was always afraid to ask for help. And I would say there is something so respectable and so noble about just ask for help with anything. It's the best thing you can do. Sean Johnson, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thank you. I admire Sean's toughness and ability to endure everything that she's been through, both physically and mentally. Striving to meet the world's expectations of you at the vulnerable age of 16 is an experience many of us worry about. But unlike most of us, Sean actually had the attention of the world on her and had to read about their opinions of her online. Now, despite all of the struggle that Sean went through growing up in the competitive world of gymnastics, she says she wouldn't do anything differently if she had to do it all over again. Though it was painful at the time, going through what she did made her who she is today. 
And Sean's story alone is a great example of human resilience and how you can bounce back from multiple lows as long as you're able to ask for help. So chances are you're not an Olympic athlete listening to this, but if you're feeling the same things that she felt, know that you can make your struggles known and help will inevitably arrive. Now, imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Michaela Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Jeff Morrow. Emily Milliron is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious